0: Genesis 32. Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is the camp of God. So he named the place Mah- Mahaniam. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, This is what you are to say to my master Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, men servants and maid servants. Now I am sending this message to my Lord, that I may find favor in, his, in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and four hundred men are with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two groups. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper, and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. He spent the night there, and from what he had had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau, two hundred female goats and twenty male goats, two hundred ewes and twenty rams, thirty female camels with their young, forty cows and ten bulls, and twenty female donkeys and ten male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself, and said to his servants, Go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. He instructed one, the one in the lead. When my brother Esau meets you and asks, to whom do you belong and where are you going and who owns all these animals in front of you, then you are to say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my lord Esau and he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second and third and all the others who followed the herds. You are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him and be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts. I am sending him on ahead. Later, when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his eleven sons and crossed the ford of Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions, so Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until till daybreak. When the man saw he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. This is God's word.
1: Well, interesting as ever, these uh, readings in Genesis is a work out through this uh, section. Let's begin by praying. Our loving Heavenly Father almighty God, our ways are not your ways and our thoughts are not your thoughts. And we would not have told this story and we have not, would not have placed it in the Bible for it is strong meat to us. But Father, let we pray that as we look at this account of how you related to Jacob, we'd understand it. More than that, we pray that we'd understand more of your ways more of your character, more of your desire for us. And so we'd trust you, we'd love you, we'd give our lives to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is, I don't know if you know this story very well, Jacob wrestling with God. Now wrestling is somewhat unfashionable, I don't know if you noticed that. Uh, but it is quite unfashionable these days, so there's going to be wrestling in Rio, but that's it. It's been dumped from the Olympic Games after that. Um, both forms, Greco-Roman and freestyle, whatever the difference is, uh, between those two. And they haven't decided what's going to go on in this place, but it'll either be karate, softball, wakeboarding, squash, wushu, or rollerblading. So, from the first modern Olympics, they've had uh, wrestling, but it's out of fashion now, uh, so they've kicked it out. That is a very long way from the heyday of wrestling in this country, which most of you will not remember. But for just a few in this room wouldn't remember, that at the back end of the 1970s, of a Saturday afternoon, 16 million people in the UK would sit down and watch World of Sports, and the pantomime wrestling antics of Big Daddy and Giant Haystacks and Kendo Nagasaki. And he's one of them, because he's laughing and he remembers. (laughs) (laughs) How many actually remember that? (laughs) Okay, well, good for you. Well done. (laughs) Sixteen million people watched the ridiculous pantomime with the grannies in the front row getting animated and swirling their handbags around in anger. but anyway, wrestling's out of fashion now. So we can't even talk about that. But biblically, wrestling is a, well, it's a good thing. I guess you'd have to say. Psalm 13, you see David wrestling with his doubts before God. Colossians 4, Epaphroditus wrestles in prayer for the church. Ephesians 6, Christians are told to wrestle with the temptation of evil. That's a good thing. There's a sense in which I want to encourage you to don your spiritual spandex and wrestle. That's a good thing, biblically, to do. Apart from, it's not quite what's going on here. I guess that's sometimes how this passage is taken. We need to wrestle with God, you know, uh, wrestle him down, two fools and one submission, and then God will give us what we want. Apart from, you see, throughout this narrative, The Lord takes the initiative. He goes to Jacob and wrestles with him and wounds him in order to bless him. And we'll see those marks come through again. The Lord takes the initiative. He wounds in order to bless. But it's his decision. It's not that Jacob says, come on then, God, I want some blessing. Bring it on. It's the Lord's initiative that takes place here. What you have in this account is a vivid story of the Lord deliberately humbling the man Jacob in order to bless him, bringing him to a a point of desperation so that Jacob recognizes his need of the Lord. Now that's quite strong meat, that the Lord would do that. He would wound a man in order to humble the man to the point where he could be blessed. But that's what we're talking about tonight. Now just before we jump in, just (laughs) biblically, suffering is a big topic. I mean, suffering is a big topic in any sense, just in the world, of course, But biblically, uh, suffering is not, not, there's no one answer. There's never a glib answer, why would suffering take place? There are many, many reasons given in the Bible why suffering may be occurring in someone's life. Just for the sake of one sense context, let me give you five. This is not an exhaustive list. Why would suffering take place? One, there's just disaster. There's the disaster of living in a fallen world. And in a fallen world... Where man has rebelled against God and there's sin, there is disease and there is death. And those things happen. And sometimes we suffer just because we're in a fallen world. It's just disaster. Secondly, sometimes it is discipline. A couple of weeks ago in the morning we looked at Proverbs chapter 3, verse 12. The Lord disciplines those he loves. Rather than allowing someone to go on in a pattern of unrepentant sin." He'll cause some impediment to come, something to go wrong, in order to discipline them. That's a sign of love. could just be the disaster of a falling world, discipline. Uh, Three, to develop character more broadly. The Lord will cause setbacks in our lives to grow our patience, to grow our godliness, so that we're better able to cope with bigger disasters in life. So that we have the sort of character that clings on to him and secures the benefits of in eternity. So could just be disaster, discipline, developing character, a fourth might be to display God's grace that as the Christian bears up under suffering and still says with Job The Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Wow but you're suffering so much. Why don't you curse God and die, says Job's wife. Now, blessed be the name of the Lord. Wow. It's no less a miracle than someone being healed to bear up under that sort of duress. Disaster, discipline for sin, developing character, displaying God's grace. The fifth one just be just to deepen our reliance upon him. I mean, these are overlapping, I know. But sometimes God will strip us down Bring us to the end of our resources so that we trust in him more exclusively rather than ourselves. And it's that sort of sense that is taking place here in Genesis 32. The Lord will wound Jacob in order that he becomes a man he can bless. It's all context. All I'm saying there is if someone is suffering you're hard pushed to tell why. Whole number of biblical reasons it could be. If it's you personally, generally there's healthy things to do. I examine your life. Is there something I need to change? If I'm getting intense migraines over a period of time, I examine my life and think, well, I don't know why I'm getting, this is just painful. Uh, is there anything in my life I need to change, Lord? Or well, maybe I've been really harsh with my wife. And so I repent of that and treat her better. The migraines continue. Still a good outcome. She thinks. That's hypothetical. Okay. So in one sense, how you respond to it is to trust the Lord. You don't always know why it's happening. But repent of sin, trust in him. You don't know why. But in this case, it's a deliberate humbling in order to bless. So two things, let's keep it kind of brief. Two things uh, uh, about Jacob. He feared a meeting with Esau. He needed a meeting with God. God. He feared a meeting with Esau. What he needed was a meeting with God. First then, Esau. He feared a meeting with Esau. Now, Jacob, if you've been with us over the last... it's a long time, isn't it? Feels it. Uh, five weeks or so, six weeks, we'll be looking at the life of Jacob. Jacob, you know, his name, it literally means deceiver, and that's what he does. So he's deceived his father and stolen blessing. He's deceived his brother. He's a cad. He's not a nice man. Yeah, we, you know, we've taken a straw poll in this room, where we decided we even like Esau better than him. He's not nice, Jacob. Um, but God still graciously blesses him. Because the blessing of God is not dependent upon what we do. It's dependent upon His kindness. One sense just a gospel picture. We don't achieve, reach up and grasp blessing by our goodness. We just receive it as God kindly grants it to us. And God has determined to bless this man Jacob, uh, despite the fact he's a cad. Now, uh, most of what I just talked about happened in chapter 27 when he deceived his brother and deceived his father. And the last time we see Jacob and Esau interacting, they hate one another. And uh, Esau, very bluntly, says, I'm going to kill him. I will kill that man. And that was 20 years earlier. And now Jacob is on his way back to uh, the land. the prom- He's been in exile um, So Esau, uh, Isaac, two sons, Esau, Jacob, they're in the land of Canaan, the promised land, which God is going to bless them in, and they're going to multiply in. But for the last 20 years, uh, Jacob's been in exile, and Padam Aram doesn't really matter, but he's been out of exile, and now God has said time to go home. Off you go, back you go home. And Jacob thinks to himself, okay, I'm going home. You see my brother who wants to kill me. So there's some hesitation He's fearing this meeting with Esau. I guess some of us can relate to that. We may be fearing going to the office tomorrow because of an awkward colleague. We may fear going to see a relative next month because uh, you know there's all sorts of conflict there. Fear. That's what's going on for Jacob in his head. That's what he thinks is the problem. And so... Um, It starts off, uh, chapter 32, verse 1, the Lord is kind. So Jacob's going back, and just as when he left the promised land, 20 years earlier, in chapter 28, uh, God met with him with some angels. Here on his way back in, uh, the angels meet with him. Jacob sees some angels, that's not normal. And he says, oh, this is the camp of God. So he named that place Mahanaim. Two camps. There's my camp, there's God's camp. Good to know God's with me, so God is being kind. Then you get a whole lot of plans of Jacob uh, taking place. Uh, Plan 1. Verses 3 to 5. Send some messengers ahead. Verse 4. This is what you're to say to my master Esau. Your servant says, Jacob, I've been staying with Laban, and remain there till now. I've got cattle, donkeys, sheep, goats, men, servants, maid, servants. I'm sending this fa- message that I may find favor in your eyes. Hmm. That's interesting. I'm your servant, Jacob. I'm talking to my master Esau. Because if you remember, chapter 27, part of the blessing that he stole was that he would be in charge and Esau would serve him. So there's there's some humility here from Jacob, probably. Maybe desperation. Anyway, uh, verse 6, when the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we, we, we went to your brother Esau, and now he's coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. Oh, okay. And what are they wearing? Party hats or swords? Just so I know what's coming 400 men it's quite a lot of men that he's coming to meet me and my wives and kids with and my sheep (laughs) so you're told verse 7 his state of mind in great fear and distress let's double it up so we get the point very clear he is very much afraid so plan two Let's divide the camp into two, flocks and herds over there and over here. Okay, so if Esau comes and attacks, at least half of us will escape. So he's not in a great shape. So plan one, not going so well. Plan two, well, slightly desperation. But then he prays, verse 9. Now, you can make up your own minds on this. Most of the stuff I read this week said, oh, Jacob, just the same, isn't he? He comes up with plan one, comes up with plan two, then eventually, when he needs to, he prays. Maybe. To my mind, this is a great prayer. This is a great prayer that he prays. Verse 9. This is the first time we see Jacob praying in the narrative of his life. This is also the longest prayer in the book of Genesis. Quite interesting. And I think it's a great prayer. So verse 9, he starts off appealing to the promises of God. Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Go back to your country and your relatives, I'll make you prosper. Lord, you you are the God who's made promises to me. And you're the God who has been faithful to my family. I'm talking to that sort of God. He appeals to the Lord's promises. Verse 10, he recognizes his status. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you've shown your servant. I only have my staff, literally a stick. I had a stick when I crossed the Jordan. Now I've got you know, I'm a millionaire in sheep maid servant cattle terms. Wow. You are a great God who makes promises. I am unworthy, but you've been very kind to me. And only then, verse eleven, does he actually pray. Save me. That's a very desperate prayer, I admit. Save me, verse 11, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I'm afraid he'll come and attack me. But this is more encouraging. And also the mothers with their children. He's not completely self-centered. And then he concludes with the promises of God again. But you have said, I'll surely make you prosper and make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. That's a good prayer, I think. I'm going to pray according to the promises of God. I recognize I am unworthy of receiving anything. I I depend upon your mercy. Help. And I trust you because you're a promise-making God. That seems to me a very good prayer. So I think even at this point, you have to recognize that compared to the decades earlier, God has been at work in Jacob. God has been at work in him. The grace of God that purpose to bless Jacob with prosperity and with land and with family, has also been at work to change him. That's very encouraging, I think. Be encouraged. God changes people. He changes his people. It may be quick. It may take 20 years in the wilderness not of Paran or Ram, but whatever wilderness may be. But he does change people. He won't be encouraged by that. That said, he then does go back to plan Mark 3. And uh, verse 9, uh, no, begin, sorry, uh, verse 13. This sort of, okay, let's send out the animals 200 by 200. Now, 550 animals, if you did the maths as you're going along, some of you did, I know what you're like. Um, LAUGHTER 550 animals he sends out uh, in these sort of blocks of 20 or 30 or 100. So, you know, as soon as he's, you know, Esau's walking towards him, whatever state of mind Esau's in, we're not told yet, or whatever mood he's in, we're not told. But he's walking towards him every so often. Animals, wow, another gift, wow, another gift, another gift, another gift. So this is fairly shrewd. It also means that before Jacob arrives, he gets everyone through, uh, and so they may be uh, okay. I mean, it's... it's doesn't seem completely unreasonable. Apart from verse 20, you just think, oh, come on, Jacob. Be sure to say, he says, be sure to say your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, ah, I'll pacify him with these gifts I'm sending on ahead. Later when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. Oh, come on, Jacob. You know that God has promised to look after you. You'll be fine. A little more confidence in the promises of God. Now, what we can't, isn't really obvious to us, is just it's a little play going on here that the author throws in. Literally, verse 20, he thought to himself, uh, uh, I'll pacify him, is literally, I will calm his face with these gifts I'm sending on ahead. Later, when I see him, perhaps he will accept my face. I want to calm his face, he'll accept my face. What actually takes place? He sees God's face. So there's a little bit of play or pun going on here. So Jacob, well, you know, it's okay. There's been some progress in his life. But still at this point in time, you'd say, the trust isn't quite there. So Jacob feared a meeting with Esau. Now here's where we're going to spend our time, really. What does God do then? What does God do to a man who is anxious and fearful? he goes and beats him up. Now isn't that slightly unexpected? That that's what God would do to someone who's struggling with anxiety? Beat them up. Golly. Jacob feared a meeting with Esau. What he needed, he needed a meeting with God. So let's look at this uh, wrestling encounter then. Verse 22, Jacob got up and took his two wives, maidservants, 11 sons, crossed the ford of uh, Jabbok. That's the Rubicon for him. He's crossed back into Canaan. He's into Esau's territory. He's crossed the river. He's crossed his version of the Rubicon. Now they're off and running. And um, he sent them across. He sent all his possessions. So, verse 24, Jacob is left alone. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. Now, at this point in the text, it's deliberately vague. Oh, a man came and wrestled with him. Maybe that's cultural. (laughs) Game of tennis? Hello. Game of golf? Wrestle all night? You know, we're not quite told. Of course, what becomes obvious for us, verse 28, he struggled with God. Verse 30, I saw God face to face. But at this point, you know, in one sense we're not meant to know, no that's uh, not meant to know it I guess, but clearly this is a pre-incarnation manifestation of God in bodily form. Is it the second person of the Trinity in bodily form? I don't mind. Maybe, maybe not. I, I don't get too excited if it is or it isn't, but it's clearly God in bodily form appearing. Gosh in a temporary way. Now let's look at these three things, uh, the, the pattern that actually takes place here. So God initiates this encounter. God wounds Jacob. God blesses him. Let's work through those. So God obviously initiates. I hope that's obvious from the text. Verse 24, the man comes to Jacob. Verse 25, it's all from his perspective. When the man saw that he couldn't overpower Jacob, dot, dot, dot. Now, of course, the really odd thing in verse 25 is he couldn't overpower Jacob. What's going on? God got a cold? Um, Very strange, isn't it? God, at this point, is choosing to limit himself. He is condescending in order to wrestle with Jacob. Now, obviously, it's not a fair fight because verse 25... When the man saw he couldn't t- overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so the hip was rent- wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Now, a little bit of background. This word touch is an enormously technical Hebrew word which means touched. Now, I don't remember much of my wrestling, not my wrestling, wrestling from the 1970s. I tried to rack my brain of wrestling moves. I could think of the pile driver, the washing line, the half-Nelson. I don't remember the touch. You know, you're there, wrestling, and they're wrestling for hours, we're told. I don't know if they made that noise. But you imagine they're wrestling, and then God just goes, and Jay, oh, I thought I was doing all right. I thought we were evenly matched. And he just goes to jelly. It's not... And at that point, Jacob starts to think, oh, ah, something's gone wrong here. No, again, I'm no expert in wrestling, but I take it that the hip is, is the pivot. That's where you, you pivot your strength. If, as soon as your hip goes, sorry, I can't, I'm I'm doing it now. Can't stop myself. But, um, as soon as your hip goes, that's it. You can't wrestle anymore. So God has touched Jacob at the point, the crucial point of strength. And in one sense, here is the whole of his life so far condensed into one night. Jacob has wrestled with every man and won. He wrestled with his brother and won. He wrestled with his father and won. He wrestled for late with Laban and eventually he won. And he wrestles with this man and he wins apart from his God so he doesn't. He's Physical strength. And Jacob's a big man. Do you remember when he first met Rachel and he lifted a stone that three men couldn't lift? He's obviously a strong bloke. All his strength, useless now. All his scheming, useless. His planning, useless. Just a little... And God reduces him to, well, nothing. He wounds him. So Jacob does the only thing he can do. The only thing he can do, which is, he holds on. That's all he can do. He just grabs hold and holds on. And God has reduced Jacob to the point where all he can do is cling to God. He's got nothing else left. Uh, verse 26, you get the sort of Bohemian Rhapsody bit. Let me go, I will we'll not let you go, let me go, and... Um, <laughs> What is your name? And um, again, I don't suppose it went like that, but that's I'm sure that's where Queen got the, uh, the verse from. I won't let you go, says Jacob. I'm just holding on until you bless me, unless you bless me. The man, verse 27, who is God, asked him, What is your name? God knows his name. What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Deceiver. Ah, oh, yes. Verse 28, your name will no longer be Jacob Deceiver, but Israel struggles with God because you've struggled with God and with men and you've overcome. Verse 29, please tell me your name. The God replied, why do you ask my name? Or, you don't need to ask my name, do you, Jacob? You know who I am now. No one else does that and makes a man collapse. You know who I am. The Lord takes the initiative. The Lord wounds him. And then finally the Lord blesses him. Verse 29, then he blessed him there. We're not told the content of that. It isn't just, I blessed you. Blessing is verbal words. What what the Lord actually says to Jacob, the detail, we don't know. But verse 29, the Lord finally does bless him. What is going on? The Lord is saying, I, you cannot enter the promised land until I have humbled you. Until all you can do is put away your scheming and just cling to me. If you're going to be the man who receives all these wonderful blessings from me, you need to be a different sort of man. You need to be humbled. Now, a little question that strikes me, who wins this contest? Who won? Obviously, the Lord did. He defeated, you know, with the little finger flick, uh, he defeated uh, Jacob with a touch. And yet the Lord can say that Jacob prevailed. You've struggled with God and overcome. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, don't turn to it, but there's an interesting commentary on this in the book of Hosea. Hosea talks about a little about the life of uh, Jacob. You get to Hosea chapter 12, uh, verses 3 and 4. We're told, Jacob as a man, he struggled with God. He struggled with the angel and overcame him. He wept and begged him for his grace. It's a funny sort of triumph, isn't it? He overcame God by what? He wept and begged him please be gracious to me. It's a funny sort of triumph you get. But the victory, I guess, is that Jacob has gone from stubborn resistance to humble dependence. He's lost, but he's won. He's limping for the rest of his life, but he's trusting. And there's a sense that's not a bad description of a Christian one who recognizes that they're limping. They can't do it in their own strength. But they are trusting. So you see what the Lord is doing here. There's a sense in which He, He, um, He fights Jacob with His left hand. But He's upholding Him with His right hand. So that He will be blessed. This is not helpful. This is not brilliant. But uh, we just had a new baby arrive in our household. It's a bit of a shock. First one in eight years, so um, we're slightly disorientated by that. And uh, every so often, as you probably be aware, babies they scream. It's quite piercing, particularly at four a.m. Um, and sometimes they get themselves into a fluster. You know, their nose is all blocked up, and they can't really breathe. And, so, and they get really, and they start screaming, and their arms are going. And so, what do you, what do you do? You envelop them and you stop their arms from flailing, and you stop them fighting, and you just restrict them until they calm down. And, um, yeah, it doesn't always work like that. (laughs) Some will know. Really, it won't. But in theory, you don't wound them, but you restrict them until they calm down for their good. The Lord here is wounding Jacob so that all he does is cling in humble dependence upon him. Jacob, verse 31, we're told, walks away limping. He's never the same. He's limping, but he is now trusting. Now let me suggest that is a good pattern for the Christian life. That's certainly the pattern of salvation. That's how everyone becomes a Christian. The Lord takes the initiative it's his action to come and open your eyes. You say, I guess, that the Lord wounds. Put it this way, I guess, as John with John Newton, John Newton, amazing grace, as he puts it, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved.'" God takes the initiative. He makes us slightly, ooh, but he relieves them as well. He, You become a Christian, God wounds you. That is... He brings you to the point where you say, I can't save myself. If I'm going to get to heaven, I give up independence. I give up self-reliance and I just cling to Jesus Christ and His death for me and say, I'm just clinging to Him. That's all I got. I got nothing but clinging to Him. And He blesses us with salvation in a sense in which that's true of everyone becoming a Christian, I guess you'd have to say. More than that, there is a sense in which that is how he continues to deal with his people. I don't know about you, I spent much time this week thinking, why did you do it that way, Lord? That's odd. To come down, condescend to be a man, and wrestle for hours with this man before going, look, I could have defeated you in a second, ding, and now will you cling to me? Why not... Just go and visit Jacob, have a nice cup of tea, and say, now, Jacob, let's talk about your life. You've been a bit of a cat, haven't you? Time for you to change. Why this exceptionally dramatic encounter? I guess it's vivid. It's what Jacob needed. And perhaps even more so, it's what we need to read something like this. Because you can read it as a propositional statement. You could read a... At James 4, verse 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble and think, okay, yeah, you know, pride is bad, humility is good. Or you can read this and think, this is extraordinary. God would act in certain ways to deliberately humble his people in order that they might know the blessing of clinging to him. Wow. And it just sticks with us a bit more, doesn't it? Why has he done it like this? You have to end up saying there are times, and remember what I said at the beginning, there are many reasons biblically why Christians, or non-Christians indeed, will be going through suffering. Many reasons. One of them is what we have here. There are times when the Lord God will wound us, bring us to the end of our resources, when we say, I've got nothing left, Lord. I've got nothing and all I can do is cling to you. That's all i got. i got nothing else. And sometimes he would do that. Why? In order that we might know how good he is. In order that he might bless us more than we've known before. With intimacy with him. With the knowledge of his character. With stability and godliness and growth in our own character. Mixture of all of those. There are times when the Lord will wound us, and so we say, as it will be elsewhere in the Bible, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Like Asaph does in Psalm 73. Sometimes he brings us to that point for our good. It is for our good. And so it, here's the question that a text such as this throws up. When life is hard, and you think, Lord, you're putting me through the mill right now, I'm pretty wounded. The question is this, do we trust Him? Because He has good purposes in what he puts us through. He wounds in order to bless. That's strong meat, isn't it? In one sense, that's hard for us to swallow. But it's true. Limping, but trusting. is how he wants his people to be, clinging to him. You know the old poem, is it, I guess? I, I, I don't know if anyone knows who wrote it originally. I asked for strength, and God gave me difficulties to make me strong. I asked for wisdom, and God gave me problems to learn to solve. I asked for prosperity, and God gave me brain and brawn to work. I asked for courage, and God gave me dangers to overcome. I asked for love, God gave me people to help. I asked for favors, and God gave me opportunities. I received nothing I wanted. I received everything I needed. My prayer has been answered. See, Jacob thought that his greatest need was with an angry brother. And the Lord said, no, 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 your greatest need is to trust in me more deeply than you've ever done before. That's what you need to do. Sometimes the Lord will take the initiative and wound in order to bless It's a particular form of suffering. How do you trust him? How do you trust him in the mess? How do you trust him in the wounds? How do you know what he's doing? You just, you don't know. You trust him. I'm not sure, this is not quite the same issue, but let me read it, because I read this this week and I I found it very striking. Uh, Eddie Larkman was a uh, minister uh, in London uh, for a while. At age 24, uh, he married uh, his wife Sue Uh, A couple of years later, uh, she was discovered to have age 26, ovarian cancer. Uh, That was whipped out, her ovaries. Um, And she was told six to two years, six months to two years to live. In the end, she lived for three years. Uh, Pretty horrific um, time. Uh, And she so she died, leaving uh, Eddie behind and a severely disabled daughter, uh, special needs, couldn't even sit uh, in a wheelchair bound. So just the two of them left. And uh, he wrote somewhat of his reflections of caring for his wife and uh, uh, the, the time afterwards. This is a very striking little paragraph. I want to say to you that there are no perfect circumstances in which to learn to follow Christ except those you find yourself in today. That is why he has you there. I do not want to speak lightly of the difficulties some of you may be facing. I acknowledge that you may be living with desperately painful circumstances. Believe me, I know what tears are. I have shed buckets full. But Jesus will meet you in your circumstances. And he will make you the person a loving Heavenly Father wants you to be for his glory and for your good. That's wonderfully true. There are no perfect circumstances in which to learn to follow Christ except those you're in today. How do you trust a God such as this one? Well, you hear him rightly that he wounds in order to bless. And I don't know about you, but I can't help but read this story of Jacob being wounded so that he receives blessing without thinking... Uh, There was one who did that for me. There was one, of course, who wrestled. Who wrestled with men all his life, but wrestled with God in the Garden of Gethsemane. Is there any other way to take this cup from me? He wrestled with his father, God, on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wrestled with God and he won blessing, not for himself, but for me. For you, And if you know that sort of God, who would endure defeat, not just so he'd limp, but so that he'd take the crushing weight of sin and judgment upon himself, for you. He's a God you can trust. He's known pain beyond you and I will ever know. He's been wounded far worse than you and I will ever be. You can trust him. But when he wounds you slightly, dare I put it that way, it is in order that he may bless you deeply. Let's pray together. Our loving Heavenly Father, so often we're confronted in the Scriptures that our happiness is not your primary concern, but our holiness is. Our faith You will wound us in order that we may be blessed by clinging to you more tightly, by being prepared for other circumstances that may come. Thank you that you are the sort of God who is so gracious that you will bless us even while we resist your attempts to do so. You are a wonderful God who knows all things, who knows our hearts and who knows what we need. So even if we're feeling wounded by you or confused by suffering, would we trust you? Would we know that you have good purposes? Would we look upon your son who was wounded far worse so that we may be blessed and say, Lord, I've got nothing left, but I want to cling to you. So we'd proceed through this life limping, yes, but trusting.